it's easy to get caught up in the beauty and fascination of a thinket story or artwork or a song. But this appreciation should not lead to using or imitating these works out of one's appreciation. Hello and welcome to a special hour-long episode of Voices of Sitkaquan. I'm Avery Herman Sakamoto, and today on the show, elder and author Diane Benson discusses the meaning of stories and song in Tlingit culture. She shares some of her storytelling experience, as well as a poem she wrote about that experience. Thanks for joining us. This is Kari Peterson from the Petersburg Public Library, and I'm here with Diane Benson, who has become a good friend of mine. And we're here today to talk about something that is near and dear to Diane's heart, that is the meaning of stories and songs. And she just shared a poem that you wrote in the 90s? Yes. And it is fabulous. It it really sums it up. And you'll share it with us at the end? Perhaps. <laughs> Maybe. We'll see. So I, I guess I should introduce myself here for those um, who may be listening, especially thinking people. Ches yuchat du asak, tleit kache nach Diane Benson yuchat du asak, ak den tan yeth nachat city, Norwegian yadi, kagwan tan dashkan. And Petersburg, so uh, my Tlingit name is Lches, and my name is Diane Benson, and I'm from the Octantan, uh, which is the Sea Turn Crest for those who are unfamiliar with it. Uh, and I am a child of the Norwegian, as you <laughs> might have heard in there. <laughs> Did you have a question to begin? I do. Um... So in what ways are Clinket songs and stories important? Well, um, they're very important in a variety of ways. Most songs and stories are important to the Clinket people, to the clans in particular that possess the songs or the stories. For example, the Keksadi own a mourning song. Uh, this means that they only that excuse me I can't see with my glasses are giving me problems today. <laughs> this is the way it is when you get old. <laughs> <laughs> but this means that only they can use the song. It is their possession, you could say. In another way of saying that they have the copyright and permission must be obtained to use it. So Okay. This means the Kiksadi, through their clan leader, generally must give permission for its use. The mourning song has a specific purpose. It is used when the clan is grieving the loss of one of their clan members. So songs will have a specific purpose, uh, and those are very special songs. But the same holds true, not just for songs, but for stories and even tangible items. And sometimes it's hard for people to grasp that, like, what does that mean? So for an example, the Gunach Tedi have a very special story 
that is only brought out with a song at a kuich, which is what some people call a potlatch, along with the Ganach Tedi hat. Well, the story and the song and the hat are all possessions that belong to the Ganach Tedi. So not just everybody can use them. In fact, the hat can only be brought out at certain times and in certain ways and only by certain people. So you can't just run around, you know, yeah. oh, that's cool, I want to wear it to the celebration or whatever. It's not, it's not something you can use that way. And there's, you know, quite a few clans. There's at least over 200 houses within the clans. So it's a lot of, of identity, you know, for various people from different regions. And that's why I did my introduction as part of that. Um, because I, I am from the Tukdain Tan clan from the snail house, the Tukhit. And so we have our own, you know, that, that ways and, and things that would be used. But what this means is that the songs, the stories, the tangibles, such as the hats, are theirs and really must never be used by others outside that clan. And in this case, only for the designated purposes as determined by the clans and by their traditions. So, as I said, many of these things are atu, and to make a distinction with that, because uh, that can be a new word for people, they are living things. There are other ways of talking about that word and what it means, but right now, just, just to know that they are living things. And it is a way of knowing that can be confusing for some people, including for some of our own people. Well, for those of us that are older and who grew up from witnessing and being in this way, we know that they are not just things. You know, atu. They're not just things. And this atu, I... Am I saying it right? Atu. 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 It's okay. Um, I was fascinated. I learned about this first this fall. And the idea that it... First of all, atu doesn't belong to an individual. It will always belong to a clan. Probably. Yeah. Yeah, things are, you know, when they're clan property, they're they're not owned by an individual. We have yeah. some disputes. We've had disputes even within my own family because you have those within the family that lived and grew up outside the state or whatever, and so they have different um, understanding. We had a raven robe, beautiful chilcat robe that was in the possession of one of my uncles as... And you can be a caretaker of something. These become very yes. difficult and sensitive subjects uh, in today's time because there is so much misunderstanding. And then there's the monetary value that is attached to it that uh, also gives a different view of, yeah. of that item. So yes, in, um, in the dominant world, that item is very expensive in the dollar sense. But for people like myself, 
I look at that and I see my history. I see my ancestors. And I know that the clan is the one who possesses that and should have the say. But you need to have active clan leaders as well yeah. that will ensure that these things happen. And I think that's really the challenge we have as a people right now, um, having the clan leaders that know enough to take these kind of things and, and help settle the disputes around them. And there are processes, if we go back into our history, you know, one of the most beautiful things that I've ever been able to be a part of um, happened with uh, some people from Yakutat at the University of Alaska in Anchorage um, because uh, Elaine Abraham, a name many people know in our tribe and throughout the state, uh, when you look at especially Alaska history, Elaine Abraham was in a position at the university with the Native Student Services or something. And anyway, she um, was insulted by the university, by the way they handled her. Well, in the traditional ways of being, you will resolve that insult because an insult, if I were to insult you, it would be like, you know, you would be wearing black marks on your face like a, not not like clan design thing I'm talking about, uh, like ash, you know, like your, I've stained your face, okay. which also means like the way, and I think it is very metaphorical, so, but it's also doing that to your clan because okay. you, you are your clan, yes. you know. So for that to happen, then there has to be a process to remove the stains of the insult from your face. I think that is such a profound thing, you know, living in this dominant world and then having these measures, these ways to address these kinds of things that in this dominant culture we often don't address even. No. Or everybody's sort of left, left up to their own resources and feelings, and sometimes that doesn't go very well. <laughs> so this process was implemented I just found a picture the other day, uh, and I thought, oh my goodness, my little sign says Mistress of Ceremonies or something like that for, <laughs> for, this, for this occasion, because they needed to have people who filled the positions to address this and, you know, try to come up with some, I guess, English way of explaining for yes, the, the non-native people who would be there, what our roles were, so to speak. And so... I was learning as I was doing, participating in this, and uh, but it was, unfortunately, the officials of the university did not show, oh. but there were people from the university who did show, but not the ones in that position, which would have been appropriate, but they didn't come, they weren't taking it seriously. I think today they would, because they would Today want to they look would bad. take it seriously, but it was... But not then. It's a matter of culture, though, because this is what I hear when you insult somebody in Clinkett culture, your clan, it's not that something you as a clan member, if you personally insult somebody in another clan, when you're speaking, you're speaking for your clan, and you... Yes. If you insult you, you, somebody, you need to the speak. clan becomes responsible for that insult. 
That's that's the traditional, yes. the traditional process, and so what helps in today's time is like, well, we don't have that process, or we're not practicing that. Well, then take it inside, because I think I really believe in living your culture. So take it inside and say, when I speak or when I do this, I'm going to do it as if my clan is behind me, and what I say impacts them. And if we can think that way, we might watch our words better, you know. You know, there's times I've said things that I wish I'd have said in a better way. But uh, but also, remember, we keep learning. We keep learning. Yes. And that's really what this is about, too, is, give, is providing an opportunity for people to hear about these things. There are other people who have knowledge about their clans, and that they can share, uh, and about their particular protocols, perhaps. So we're, what we're talking about here are some general rules and understanding of what those things, primary things are in Tlingit that help us to really uh, deal with... Um, not just insults, but what what things mean? Yeah. What um, not just the things that are utu, but also stories and songs in their place. In you know, and primary that, protocol for how these things are handled yeah. in traditional Clinket culture, which is so outside of any Western way of looking at things. It's it's really taken me a long time of talking to you and sorting through these to understand it. And um, I'm grateful that you've been patient with me about it. <laughs> what about the storybooks for children that tell stories? Well, that's a really good question um, because they're, you know, I think a lot of Native American stories have fallen into the category of children literature okay. rather than being taken as more than being more than that and um, and it's it's not to undermine in any way the sharing of stories you know with children and, and you know that's a wonderful thing and I think there's plenty of stories to write for children uh, about Native American cultures and things preferably by Native peoples themselves but the stories, like we're talking about here, they are more than children's stories. Anything that's in the clan ownership is, unless it's specified as a children's story, and I don't know any offhand, but they are property that belongs to the clan. It's easy to get caught up in the beauty and fascination of a thinket story or artwork or a song, but... This appreciation should not lead to using or imitating these works out of one's appreciation of its uniqueness or beauty, nor are these works intended to merely entertain children. They, as I say, they're more than children's stories. They are all property protected under traditional law. Some of these stories that are, you know, there's some that I've seen being used that that really shouldn't be but we must learn you know each generation to practice these protocols and 
I'm not so sure how much, you know, young people are learning that these days. I'd like to think that they are, because there's certainly an upsurge in learning our culture. But that said, we do have stories being written that are new and are not tied to clan property, but are the creation of the indigenous author. So I want to make sure that, you know, there's a distinction between the two. And so somebody yeah. makes a story that's about, you know, somebody fishing and some traditional ways and they create an art book. And I mean, those are great things, but that's a separate thing. And it really needs to be clear because if you're using a traditional story, you need to, you need to be careful. So you need to have permission from the clan. Yeah. There, there's, you have to be, you know, if you borrow from a traditional story to create a book or something, you, you, you might be crossing some fine lines there. So it's just examine what you're doing. Yeah. And always, always, always um, give credit. You asked about permission. Um, well, permission from the clan is, is a kind of act all by itself, uh, because where do you go? <laughs> I, when, and we've and, had this problem with, with Voices of Seed Kakwan. There's a story yeah. we've wanted to tell about the woman coming under the glacier. And and you've been the steadfast, well, do you have permission to tell that story? And we're still working on it. It's been a long time in the works because we haven't... We well, have, we're still doing our due diligence on it. Good. <laughs> but I know it can be it can be problematic in this day and age because who is the clan leader and who you know is that an active clan leader or is there somebody else who's who um, you know because you don't want to get into an unsettled dispute within a clan you know yeah. in case they're arguing about it and haven't settled it yet just to just to clarify about stories. Um, to use permission, you know, we say stories vary. If someone tells you a story, let's say, then if you do not know if it is a clan story and you are using it, you must at least name the person that told you the story. Now, yeah. you'd think that in Western way of, of being, you would, you would do that. You would understand that. But for some reason, when it comes to Native people's it, it seems like it's just a free-for-all, and it has been over the decades. So looking at, you know, at the past, I think there's more and more people who are more uh, sensitive and aware today than there have been, but it's still even our own people have to realize. Um, and as you mentioned, you know, you got to practice due diligence, and you have to do your best to find out if the story is clan property first, and you guys are doing that. Um even when I know that it is clan-owned, if I'm using them and I'm sharing that story, I do so usually by also naming the person who shared it with me. Yeah. Um, I've heard that done that. a lot. Yeah, and that's um, especially if an elder is, has shared something and it's not a story that's particularly owned by the clan. And that's the protocol, is to share yeah. who shared that story with you. I think it, it's a good uh, rule of thumb. Uh, and especially if someone's created the piece, 
you know, yeah. but I think in this day and age with internet and everything and that constant sharing of things, it's as if copyright does not exist. Yeah, but it does. <laughs> and it can bite yeah. you when you least expect it because so it's it, it's better to just learn up front because it can be very costly later if yes. you don't aren't aware. So you should know their name and their clan. So yeah. and in this case we're talking about think it story. And if someone shared a story, at least know their name and their clan. And and you acknowledge this story was shared with me because I've seen story quote unquote storytellers just start telling stories it's like and then we're sitting there going hmm, where did they get that and how come they never said and you know yeah um, things like that so what if a person wants to use a story but doesn't know where it came from well if you find a story and do not know that but you're determined to use it at least inform your audience that you do not know its origin <laughs> And explain exactly where you obtain the information of the story. And and I think it's just wisest to be upfront. Citing you know? your sources. Yeah, yeah. And but but not just, you know, that, but out of respect. And gratitude. To to say, Well, I learned this story and I don't know where it came from. Personally, I wouldn't share that story probably, but but maybe it has a great meaning to an audience and it's going to be helpful to them, then I might have some some notion to want to do that, in which case I might say, um, so that it's not just about self, but it's about something, maybe it will be really helpful to someone, but that that I don't know where it came from exactly, but I, but I did get it from this person. Um, or this book, and this is the name of that person, and I don't know if they're legitimate or not. I mean, I might say all of that. Uh, and when it comes to songs, that's another ball game because it would be best not to use a think it song at all until you know exactly where it came from and that you have permission to use it. Because people have gotten into hot water over that. You know, and I've I've heard, um, you know, we had that period as we're transitioning from a world in the 90s where we were, you know, really trying to come out of that oppression, being under that rock of oppression and that silencing and wanting to learn before our elders before us are gone. And now we're the elders. Fast forward a few years and, and we are the ones um, who are, are taking those positions because... You know, like in my family, all my aunties and uncles are now gone. Um, and so it's important for us to to get across, I think, still, and always should be for the sake of our cultures, if we're really committed, mm-hmm. if we're really committed to to being Hinget, uh, it has to be more than, than um, acting like you know, it's stories and performance, and it's interwoven into, or should be, into our social and community relationships. It's part, yes. All of it is woven into the ideas of peace or resolving um, disputes. It, it all is interconnected, nothing separate, nothing separated out. It's like a woven basket, you know, and the way it holds water best is when it's tightly woven together, right? And yes. 
And so the stories and the songs, they're all part of the culture, but it's a part of daily life. It's not just an entertainment. And I have to, just from knowing you, Uh I have to say that, and I was thinking about this as I was driving over here today about when Diane wants me to know something, she tells me a story. And it might be a story from your life. Um, and I have to derive the meaning from that of what there's a point you're trying to make to me. And you're not being passive aggressive. You're not being direct, but you are being direct in, in a clinket way. That's to me. I feel like I've learned so much about that from you. And, um, to be I, honest, I hadn't even noticed that I did that. <laughs> Seriously? So, so. Yeah. But you're right, I do tend you to do, do that. that a lot. Yeah. I understand that you used to perform with the Native Theater out of Juneau. Was that the process with the stories that were told in the theater? Oh, boy. That was during that kind of transition period I was mentioning. As was that in the 90s? Yeah. That okay. was early, early 90s. In fact, I think Nakahiti started late 80s. That cast was made up of me, the wonderful Gary Wade from Juno, who I learned so much from, wonderful actor in every sense, and James Williams Jr. from Sitka, an artist from Sitka, and the late Chris Makua, who is... Uh, an outstanding performer. All of us really dedicated, and maybe to a fault, to um, protocol, to respecting our ancestors in the process, to always be striving to ensure it's the accuracy that, that things are done right. And sometimes it could get on each other's nerves just a little bit, you know, working to get there. But it was good. So that was, uh, you know, Sea Alaska Heritage Institute. I forget what they called it then. The foundation, I think they call it Sea Alaska Heritage Foundation. And they were the ones that uh, housed and managed this company. And they had hired non-natives to run it. And so, and one was uh, an English professor, or I don't know if he was a professor, he was an English major from the East Coast and living in Juneau, and, and he wrote the, the scripts. I would end up editing them quite a bit, but that's, you know, <laughs> didn't get any credit for that, and I think that was also a sexist thing, to be honest. Yeah, <laughs> likely so. You know? Anyway, so I worked with them for about three years. And um, we performed a number of traditional stories in the time that we were together. Uh, Nazi Sine, which is the story about the nephews and the killer whales, how how killer whales came to be uh, and, and came to be the beings that don't kill us, you know. And... Uh, the Gnocodate story about the sea monster, which I also directed. Um, and we also performed, which 
Sea Alaska did a video on it then and all kinds of stuff on Raven Stealing the Sun, the Moon, and the Stars. And we performed all over Southeast. I mean, we performed in other areas as we started to expand out. But I was dedicated, as as our whole group was, dedicated to performing for our people. And that also meant in Seattle because we got yeah. a lot of people down there. And so we did some some performances along, you know, from Seattle to Yakima, around Pendleton and Oregon, uh, places like that. But when they wanted us to dance in the courtyard at the university, I said no. Some of what we have is is more like atu. Well, I mean, it's not atu, but it is important, and it's not regalia. For example, is not costumes. Yeah. This is so important to get across. Yes. And young people, anybody. It's something I feel very strongly about because it certainly was drilled into us. You don't handle your regalia as you would a costume because it's not that. It's sacred. It's, well, yeah. Um, I'm careful about that word because it gets overused. And it's it's that it's, you're, you're... Excuse me, but my dog is needing to get out. <laughs> if you're just joining us, you're listening to Voices of Seat Kukwan. Today, a conversation with Diane Benson about the meaning of stories and song in Tlingit culture. The full episode can be found at org on Spotify, and on Apple Media. Let's get back to the show. Sharing that story, you know, Raven... Steals the sun, the moon, and the stars. There's so much that happens with um, with sharing those kind of stories, and they empower people. But if if you treat it like a novelty, then it becomes a novelty. You know, mm-hmm. like a Buffalo Bill kind of show. Yes. You know, and I don't want to be a Buffalo Bill kind of show. And so our focus the whole time was on our own people. And that's where we got the greatest joy. Was to was perform for them. For, for, and getting, getting, seeing tears in their eyes of joy, um, you know, hugs from elders who were so appreciative. Uh, in fact... We performed all over Southeast, which was my favorite, you know, um, including here in Petersburg. We performed here way back then. And they performed in Wrangell at the Chief Sheikh's house, which, oh, that was incredible. Um, When we performed in Wrangell, like a lot of places, it was packed and everyone was so appreciative. It was really an honor to be there. And people from Angoon, Huna... Sitka, you know, all the places that we performed, they shared how, really how important it was um, to hear the real stories. And kids would be mesmerized. We we just loved performing for them. Um, So everybody was engaged. And that's that's a tradition too, you know, having everybody together, not separated out by children and teens and yeah. all this kind of stuff. I didn't even grow up in that. We were 
we would be together. It's a gathering. And in general, yeah, especially with gatherings, it would be everybody. If there was a dance, it would be everybody. And uh, so, but they were told, we were, we really were to tell um, them in a very thinked way. And the reason is because we were showing our greatest respect for our ancestors in that way. These weren't just stories. And the people there, you know, they felt so much because they, they would tell us what it meant. They felt themselves, they felt whole. They shared this with us. And I think it demonstrates how meaningful it is to see yourself reflected in stories that your ancestors told. Yeah. Think about that. I mean, stories that belong to us. And from being, you know, raised under the cloud of oppression and people fearful to even speak or, you know, because I've seen it, you know, grandparents yeah. whose mouths are washed out with soap, they're whispering to think it in the house. They're not about to get loud outside and think it because they didn't want any more of that punishment. And it brings up bad memories. You know, the, so so to hear it and to feel it and to feel pride about it uh, and their stories that belong to you, that's a powerful thing. Uh, and Silaska ended up making videos out of some of it. But, you know, so the, us four performers, you know, me and James and Gary and, and Chris, we understood that this was for our people. And this is what we did it for. But sad to say, um, things changed and it became about money and touring and and then... You know, for those who are managing the program, um, they actually brought in other actors and replaced uh, some of us. I ended up leaving during that time because I just couldn't get into it, um, to this new way, because uh, they wanted to to tour, and, you know, and I just couldn't handle this idea of dancing around in the street to drum up audiences. You know, yeah. I just felt it just... I, so if I was touring. in Western theater, that's a yeah. I under I get it there because that's a costume. Our stories with these meanings, I just felt like this is not proper. And I still think of the faces of all those people in, you know, like in Chief Shakes, and having, you know, just the what well, comes down this amazing to motive. Thing. It's more than that, though. I mean, it is it, motive than, is part of motive it. Motive is, but it comes down to questioning your own motive. Yeah. And it didn't feel good. Yeah. You know, it didn't feel, it felt kind of grimy to me. And so these people replaced us, uh, and they did what they did. They even went to Scotland. And, but the funny thing is, when they did that, it started to crumble, and it failed. Ultimately, it failed, and it went under. They even tried to get me at the last minute when they were in debt, even, uh, for me to come back at that point and, and try to save it. And I thought, well, you're, you're a kind offer of half the price uh, and twice the work <laughs> that was done. I think I will pass. <laughs> but but I, I just think that... I, I couldn't help but think that our ancestors were not happy when it got like that, you know. 
you know, I wanted only to perform for our people, and that's because it lifted our people, and and that's always critical. We had a lot, you know, we were dealing with things like suicides and and uh, and on all the other things, and we still do. So anything that we can do that brings people together and makes us all feel like we're part of that community, and this was a wonderful way of doing that. Um, I just got to say one more thing about okay, that. Okay, sorry, um, did I interrupt you? Well, it's yeah. just that there was this, this, this kind of draws a picture, too. And it's not to pick on non-Native peoples. It's, it's just that non-Native people that want to get involved with this and and uh, and our, our people hiring non-Native people instead of Native people to, to, to run a Native theater or anything else, you know. But when we went to Haynes and... Uh, because we needed to go there to get permission from the clan leader, uh, from a particular clan, and I was sent to the door to go get this permission. Well, the two non-native men stayed in the car that were ma- that were directly managing the company um, and hid. <laughs> you know, I turned around to see where they were if they were going to come down. They weren't there; they had hid. And it, that really felt awkward, um, you know, for me. And I really began to wonder what the values were, you know. And, and yeah. clearly it became about money and prestige and whatever else. And, you know, so that took took something out of it. But I went on anyway after that to Nakai Theatre Ensemble in Yukon, Canada and had a great summer as the guest artistic director of the Native Theatre School. So... Ah, well. (laughs) So what about the preservation of stories? Oh, yeah. I understand that there was fear about the loss of Native or Clinket culture, especially during the boarding school period. Yeah. Yeah, um, preservation is an interesting word um, because you could say... All of the things we're doing is the preservation of our culture, but it's not an active word, you know. And I got tired of hearing that word um, then because uh, I became in the mindset that I don't want to preserve culture so much as as I wanted to live it. And I think we were all dealing with and coming to awareness of this level at that time because this matures over time and grows just like rising dough right you know it's rising fry bread dough oh it's (laughs) dinner time but um, (laughs) but there's there's a lot that I think we have learned over these decades but we still have a lot to remember too so if we can remember that there are protocols, you know, and and we still have people out there selling books um, and things that are not Native that are telling our stories. We haven't put one together other than through the Dowenhowers' books, which are fabulous books, by the way, that tell some of our stories. But, the, you know, there's a non-Native woman from Ketchikan who wrote several books on Thinkit stories and still sells them. You know, and a long time ago, when I met her back, you know, 30 years ago or so, I asked her about whether she got permission to write the stories. 
And um, she was a little confused and told me <laughs> that the stories were being lost and that she was helping to preserve them. And she, even on her books, it says, you know, myths. She called them myths. Well, there are several problems with this line of thinking, regardless of how altruistic its intent, you know. For one thing, it is up to us to renew and grow our own culture. It is yeah. up to us and how we do it. And within our own culture. And we are. You see this history of growth and continuance and language, you know, revival. It's more than preservation, it's revival. And for another, it does nothing for us, for someone to take our stories out of their proper context. Yeah. Our stories are much more than myths, and to refer to them as such is really to demonstrate a lack of understanding about what they mean to us as a people and to the development of our culture and our relationships with one another and with our ancestors. So I emphasize all those things because it's all those components. It's more than, you know, if you take it out of the context of who we are, what is it then? It's just a story. Yeah. Uh, so to write these out of context and without permission or even cultural knowledge is quite simply to deny our existence our very existence and you know I appreciate appreciation as I said before of our arts and our ways but doing this kind of thing is not helpful to us in fact the only person that it helps is the person profiting from it if I do nothing else but help people to think more carefully and to share more um, together as our own people, you know, our own people sharing more together with each other and working towards protocols to encourage. I just want to encourage that so much, especially the love between each other and between our clans, that we really focus on that and not impressing somebody on the Internet or whatever, but, you know... um, but to really focus on that. Yeah. And and that's what makes it alive. Yeah. Those, the personal relationships and the memory of being in the moment. Yes. Of, of the sharing. Exactly. I appreciate having this opportunity and giving voice. You know. Yeah. I'm just thinking because I I do want you to read this poem that you wrote. I'm I'm also just thinking about what you said, how near and dear this is to your heart, um, mm-hmm. this issue. And I feel like I'm a fairly smart person. And a lot of times I talk to you about this issue and I struggle to understand it. I do, but it's taken me some time. And um, it's cultural conditioning. Yeah. You know, your cultural conditioning, my cultural conditioning, which is blended, you know? Yeah. But that idea of that I am from the dominant culture, I don't think I really 
got that until I started talking to you about this <laughs> issue. Oops. <laughs> <laughs> because that's where it it would come out. Hmm. And I would see, oh, this is something that I've never experienced. And it's not the way I think or have been brought up to think. And, but I need to respect it and I do need to understand it. And I need to take, I need to remove my assumptions because my assumptions are coming from the dominant culture. And um, as you're talking, I'm thinking a lot of what you were experiencing in the time period you're talking about in the 1990s, our culture was a little bit different then. And now there's much more of a movement to have um, a reconciliation with the racist roots of this country we've kind of got things going on at the same time we have a rise in race you know over racism Mm -hmm. we also have more of a movement towards recognizing it and addressing it yeah so it's more it's complicated more complicated today oh it's so complex and and I feel for the young people uh, on this subject because of just they're they're trying to find ways and, and the ways that are suggested are not always the best way um, but they're they're going to go through their learning process and their pains on this subject doesn't look like it's something that's going to go away really soon no you know if no. ever <laughs> I'd like to think it will someday but I don't I don't know um, in the meantime, we do these things. We share and to, to encourage knowledge and respect. Um, and I know sometimes I've I've become aware, you know, that sometimes my voice doesn't maybe doesn't sound respectful to some people because I'm so straightforward. But the reality is, given boarding school and, you know, and being locked up and shifting from homes to homes and places to places and you get rough around the edges and and that's going to be part of who you are. Um, it's just yeah. part of who I am, but it doesn't mean my heart is um, cold. No. It just means... Um, and I think I've come a long way from how I used to talk. <laughs> <laughs> so... Well, and it's funny because I think of you very much as such a thoughtful, caring person who really puts a lot of um, a lot of thought and care into how you treat people and talk to people. And so it's funny to hear you describe yourself that way <laughs> because you might be. I don't know. I guess I wouldn't really describe you as blunt. <laughs> but you are to but the it's point. Been, it's been you are to definitely to the point. <laughs> <laughs> Did you want me to read my blunt poem? <laughs> I, I do want you to read this blunt poem. Um, it, because it was it, a especially shy. 
Uh, the voice is not shy in that poem. No, the voice is not shy in this poem. And this is about the issue that we're talking about. And you wrote this in the 1990s, right? Yes. Yes, I did. And, yeah. Okay. I did read it in, in England. It, the first time I read it here, it did not go well. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe in these times they could appreciate it. I don't know. And uh, So... It's called, and it's, it starts off with, To filmmakers, writers, and other so-called sympathizers. Preserve this. <laughs> From the precipitous brink of ultimate extinction you like to believe we face, the preservation of our myths depends on them being retold. And by who? You I suppose. You say that our oral tradition is just part of native history and should be written by you, arguing the logic that if we maintain only natives should tell native stories, then American history should only be written by Americans. Such a leap. Did you know that the Kiksadi own a story of mourning meant for use when they grieve? It is not entertainment. Did you know that the clan of the Ganachtedi have a story that is only brought out with a song at Potlatch with the Ganachtedi hat? It is not entertainment. Did you know that our stories are not separate from our existence, that each time you retell the stories of Thinket people as fables, you deny that existence for entertainment? Did you know that you contribute to making our oral traditions extinct by reinterpreting the meanings? Selfish entertainment. Did you know that each time you help preserve the oral traditions, that you step on my face, my grandmother's face, my clan's face? Did you know that we are here on our land, living next door to you, engaging in ceremony, in potlatch, in song, and we don't need your interpretation of who we are as entertainment. Did you know that to do so only adds to the already disappointing and inaccurate beliefs that your culture has about us that would keep us as entertainment? Did you know that by traditional law, we own our stories, they are our intellectual and spiritual property, and that you steal from us each and every time you rewrite our stories, our history, mainstream entertainment. Did you know it's like grave robbery, your entertainment? Did you know that I would like to cut your hands off to repay your patronizing thievery? Preserve these words that I write, for they too are oral tradition that I will speak to you ceremoniously each and every time I see you. <laughs> well, <laughs> you had some feelings about this issue. <laughs> a few little feelings in there. <laughs> a few little feelings. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing it. And thank you for talking to me about this because I know that I know that we talk about this issue, you and I, mm -hmm. but it's it's taken you a while to be comfortable having a, a conversation about it recorded. <laughs> yeah, because you know I've had to 
I don't want people to misunderstand me. But I do want to bring up a person that I met along the roads in life at a writer's conference in Penticton, Canada. And we just hit it off, and her name was Hunani K. Trask from Hawaii. Um, she passed away not long ago, and I shall definitely miss her voice. But she, we knew we were just going to be besties right off because she... Uh, she had said, and you know, and that wasn't that was around the same time as this um, poem, and and uh, she had said something to the effect when she was doing her reading that that it was much better for them. She was using her pen rather than a sword. Yes, and I just thought she is awesome. I mean, she really yeah. writes some powerful stuff. She's uh, in you know in defense of their culture and existence in Hawaii. So I totally related. Yeah. Because we felt like we've had to fight, fight, fight. And now I think we're... All we have to do now is really um, live. Like, live it. Live it as best you can every day. Find ways to live it. Live yeah. live who you are. And, and you know, through foods and, and through gratitude and and through you know like I'm out thinking the berry bushes and just enjoying myself picking berries yes. but you know so there's those things there's all those things it's the think it mindset as you move through life yes it isn't just what you do every day no and I will say I have to say that I jumped in the car to come over here and part of me was feeling bad because I wanted to run down to the salty pantry and get you a treat or I wanted to stop and pick some berries for you because I feel like what I've learned about culture so far is that really I should be showing up here to do this interview with at the very least a bowl of berries for you (laughs) and would be proper and I'm sorry that I didn't or wasn't able to I was yeah (laughs) because <laughs> I really would have liked to do that in and but, that, yeah and and that's that's a very nice point to make I think for a listener because um, we're very much like that you know and sometimes there's things like I didn't really learn growing up or get at the key points yeah and I get um so I can get mixed up, but uh, because of, you know, foster homes and stuff, boarding schools. And it's okay. Like, so you do what you can when you can and when you remember to do so. Maybe somebody will, uh, sometimes I don't know the proper protocol socially. You know, yeah. socially is more of a challenge. And so it's it's a constant learning process. And so I'm not like the expert, but I know that I'm compelled to do certain things. Yes. And sometimes, you know, things we live, we haven't learned to articulate them as something special because it was just what you do. Yeah. You know. So it's fun when non-natives get to express themselves as how how did they come to have this routine or this this tradition 
And sometimes that puts them on the spot because they think, well, that's the way everybody does it. No, they don't. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, so, you you know, so you have those societal ways of doing things. You also have, and community ways, and you also have your individual learning. Yeah. And, and, And some of us just have gaps. Not to say that that's what's happening to you, but because yeah. that was not my intent. But but I know that's true in my in my life, and and what I intend and what I do might not appear that way. Yeah. And then I, if somebody doesn't tell me, then I don't know what I've done that I should have done. Yeah. So I really appreciate somebody just saying it, and somebody will say, "Oh, it's not." A, Proper, it's not respectful, and I think, you know, I think it's more disrespectful to be silent. And this okay. is, and I think we have to. The reason why I think we have to think of it this way is because we have had a lot of separation, trauma, addictions that have shredded us. I think it's a loving thing to share with someone. Maybe this is how you should do it. Yeah. And I know you, and, and the way that you say that and mean that is not in a judgmental way. Exactly. It's just, uh, I thought you would like to know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'd like the berries, though. <laughs> I bet you no, would. <laughs> I actually picked a bunch, so I'm, I'm good. But, uh, yeah, well, thank but you. Goodness, nice. cheese. And a big thank you to Diane Benson for sitting down with Kari Peterson to have that conversation. Thanks for joining us for Voices of Seat Kekwan. Voices of Seat Kekwan is recorded and produced on Tlingit Ani, the historical homeland of the Tlingit people, but also the current homeland and the land that holds their future. Thank you for joining us for Voices of Sitkakwan. This show is a collaboration between the Petersburg Indigenous Awareness Committee, KFSK Community Radio, and the Petersburg Public Library. It is made possible, in part, by a grant from the Institute of Museum and Library Services and the Alaska State Libraries, Archives, and Museums. It is also made possible by the generosity of our participants, including the volunteers on our content committee. We thank them for their enthusiasm and dedication. To participate in Voices of Seat Kukwan, contact Kari Peterson at the Petersburg Public Library. Archives of shows can be found at seatkavoices.org. That's S-E-E-T-K-A voices.org, as well as on Spotify and Apple Media. Gnoch chish.